Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill. This is Scott Powell, and this is Scott Powell. It's just me this week. You're stuck with me. Father Peter uh, is still on pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, um, and he cannot get inter- internet reception. He uh, we had a kind of a while back and forth this morning. He's trying to get intercept internet reception in this particular town. He is on the trail, and he just couldn't do it. So with his grave apologies and regrets, you're stuck with me this week. Um, this is our last week of me recording solo. I know we had a little bit of me solo last week as well. Uh, he will be back in town at the end of this week, and so we will be together, and life will be happy, and all will be well, and everyone will rejoice with great joy and rejoicing. Regardless, um, I feel bad. I always just feel bad that you're just stuck with me. This is kind of embarrassing because uh, I know half of you are probably shutting down your iPods right now thinking, ah, I don't want to listen to this guy. But for those of you who are left, we are going to have a great time. So we're uh, looking at today the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time. We're going to be looking at the readings, doing a little reflection, and seeing uh, kind of what these readings are all about. It's probably going to be a slight bit shorter than normal because uh, I'm slightly, really slightly less long-winded when Father Peter is not here and I don't have to bring him back on track. But regardless, we're going to do our best. So, um, yeah, the 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Today, or this week, we're looking at our first reading coming from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3, verse 5, and then it jumps over to chapter uh, to verse 7 to 12. So 1 Kings, chapter 3, verse 5, and then verses 7 through 12. Our responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 119, verse 57, 72, 76, 77, 127, 128, and then 129 to 130. Uh the reading, the second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18, uh, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And then the gospel, of course, is from Matthew. We're continuing on with Jesus' parables in Matthew 13, and we're looking at verses 44 through 52. So we, uh, they're actually great readings this week, and there's a lot going on. Um, it's kind of fun to be back in Kings. We haven't been in uh, what are called the historical books in quite a while. So the historical books are the books like, um, so, you know, the way the Old Testament is arranged, you have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which sort of form the foundation of everything. And then after that, you have what, are, what our Jewish friends call the historical books, which are uh, the books of Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and all these, which um, get you into the narrative story of the Old Testament. So salvation history, as we call it. Um, our reading from First Kings this week puts us in a really, really interesting time period. Um, the way that it begins, we are in the kingship when, during the reign of King Solomon. Now, a lot of you guys have, I'm sure, heard of King Solomon. And King Solomon, of course, was famous for his what? Father Peter's not here to answer my question or to stare blankly at me. First Kings, uh, Solomon is well known for his wisdom, of course, right? So Solomon was known for wisdom. This is actually the moment in the story that Solomon receives that wisdom. And it's kind of a neat story. Um, let's read it really quick, and then I want to kind of take it a little bit deeper. So uh, again, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. It says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream that night, in a dream at night. And God said, Ask something of me, and I will give it to you. Now, at this point in the story, Solomon has just recently become king. There was really this tumultuous story of David, his father, so King David, the great King David, who was very old in age. He was kind of out of it. He was starting to begin to lose his mind a little bit. 
and a number of his sons staged some coups for the kingship. There was a lot of bloodshed. There was a lot of power grabs. It was a, a huge story full of intrigue. The first uh, few chapters of First Kings and the, the last ones of Second Samuel are really, really interesting as everyone's grabbing for power and grabbing for the throne. David orchestrates the situation where he makes it clear that his son Solomon is going to be the king, and this happens through Solomon riding his father's donkey into the holy city of Jerusalem um, as a sign of his kingship, as a sign of his being the true son of David. Jesus, if you remember in the Gospels, evokes all of this on Palm Sunday when he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. He's recognized as king, the true son of David. All these things are evoked in this story. So it's a really neat story. I encourage you, if you get a chance, go back and check it out because it's a really really great story. But by the time that Solomon actually ascends the throne in Israel, he's just a teenager. So he's a teenager at this point. And for a teenager, you know, he has a, he already has a great deal of wisdom even before God grants it to him. So God appears to him and says, you're the king now. Ask something of me because God was understood to be literally the father of the king in Israel. Um, David, this was established with the coronation of David. And he said, I will be a father to you and you will be my son and I'll be a, a father to your sons and all these things. Um, Psalm 7, I believe, is, is really a reference to all this. And it's, it's this beautiful understanding why we call the king, why the Old Testament king was called God's son, the son of God. Because it was literally understood that God is his father. He held a very special place in God's family. It's not that he was understood to be better than everyone else. It was that God had a very special role for him. He had a responsibility to care for God's children, which is why I think it's interesting that God prepared the nation of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years by calling their kings the son of God so that eventually their true king of kings for all eternity would literally be the son of God, Jesus Christ, who is our king of kings. So it's an interesting story that sort of builds up to a really big theological reality for us. So God appears to this young Solomon. He says, ask something of me and I will give it to you. And Solomon answered, O Lord, my God, you have made me your servant, king to succeed my father David, but I'm a mere youth, not knowing how at all how to act. I guess he's a little bit wrong in that. I serve you in the midst of a people whom you have chosen, a people so vast they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge your people and to distinguish right from wrong. For who is able to govern this vast people of yours? Now, this is really beautiful that Solomon asks for something that's good, something that's holy. He doesn't ask for a long life or riches or money or death to his enemies. And God responds, he says, The Lord was so pleased that Solomon made this request that God said to him, Because you have asked for this, and for not a long life for yourself, nor for riches, nor for the life of your enemies, but for understanding so that you may know what is right, I will do as you requested. I will give you a heart so wise and understanding that there has never been anyone like you up till now, and after you there will come no one equal to you. He goes on, and God goes on in the next few lines to say, I'll give you all the things you didn't ask for as well. So a long life and riches and death to your enemies and everything else. So it's kind of this beautiful moment. And God is really smiling upon a really, he, he already has wisdom. And there's clearly already wisdom here on the part of young Solomon. If he's asking for wisdom, if he's asking for God's wisdom to do what's right. It seems like a great story. And this is kind of the one we always hear. Maybe you guys have heard as kids. I, I know I did. And Solomon's wise, great story. Everything's nice. But the story of Solomon is kind of a sordid one. And what we get is this concept of who much is given, much is required. And Solomon is given much and he's required much from that. 
he's not always faithful, even as the story begins. So this is a great moment. It's kind of this highlight. This is what everyone remembers. But as the story of Solomon actually began, things aren't quite so rosy. So the story of Solomon really, well, it starts before this, but Solomon's um, kingship really starts in, in chapter three. Well, it doesn't start. It starts a little before that, but it really gets uh, expounded upon chapter three of First Kings. It says this. It begins by saying Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he married and he married his daughter. Now, on one level, this is this is a good political move, and it's very strategic to be friends with Egypt at that time because they're the superpower of the world. It's also important that Egypt, who is the superpower of the world, recognizes that Israel has some importance as well. That's kind of a big deal. But if you're a Jewish person, you're reading this and you're hearing, wait a second. Solomon made an alliance with Egypt, with Pharaoh. That was the people who not too long ago had been enslaving us and killing us and wanting to keep us down. That's kind of a big red warning flag, right? And he marries his daughter. So now Egypt's family is part of the family of Israel. It says he brought her into the city of David, Jerusalem, and he finished building his palace and the temple of the, until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and a wall around Jerusalem. But it says in verse 2, the, the people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of, for the, name of the Lord. The high places are, are kind of a funny little thing, and scholars are never quite sure what to do with these, but when the people of Israel um, gained the Holy Land, the Promised Land, when they finally entered Canaan, there were all of these quote-unquote high places all around the land, which were basically these, ta- uh, these pagan shrines that literally dotted the whole land of Canaan. They were like Starbucks. You know, you could always just pull over and, and grab a quick um, worship. You know, you could offer some incense real quick to the, these pagan gods on the side of the road. I mean, they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And that was sort of what you did. It's unclear whether they're worshiping God at these pagan um, altars or they're worshiping pagan gods at these pagan altars. I think it's telling that it says the people, it says, however, the people were still sacrificing at these high places. I get the feeling, and I think the scripture kind of attests to this, that the people weren't entirely holy and pure in their intentions. I don't, I don't think they were always worshiping the one true God. They were worshiping these pagan gods, these Canaanite gods. They were being like the culture around them. That's sort of what Israel always tends to do. They assimilate. They become like the broader culture, and that's problematic. And so... Um, Solomon on one level, and his father David previous to this on another level, even though they were very good and very holy and very wise, they did not clean up the whole place. They didn't do all the things they were, they were supposed to. Now Solomon is eventually going to streamline all of the worship uh, system, and he's going to build a temple to God. But even if you, if you go on, it actually says, verse 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places. So he did all these great things and he worshiped God and he was kind of like David, except for the one little small problem that he was offering sacrifice to tons of pagan pagan gods. It actually says thousands at one point he was offering sacrifice. So this is actually pretty problematic. And what we have in the Old Testament, which is so telling, is a story of a guy that God blesses, a guy that wants to do the right thing. He's trying to be holy, but his life is so messy, just like all of our lives. There is good and there is bad. He does great good, but he also does grave evil. And it's actually under King Solomon and really just after Solomon that the whole nation, the whole kingdom of Israel takes a huge nosedive. And Solomon, and later than that, his children, will lead to civil war in the nation, in the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom will be divided in half. 
Um, there's all these little things if you read the story of Solomon. Again, what we think of, what we tend to think of is Solomon's wisdom. And, you know, right after he asks for wisdom and God grants it to him, you get this this interesting story about Solomon's particular kind of wisdom. Remember that story of the prostitutes who bring a baby before him and they say, well, which whose baby is it? And he says, we'll cut the baby in half. And one was like, all right, sounds great to me. And the other's like, no, no, let her have the baby because I'd rather her have it than for my baby to be cut in half. And he's like, oh, that shows me that you're the true mother. I don't know if you guys remember that story or not. It's kind of an interesting one. But it, it's kind of showing Solomon's wisdom. This sort of enters the really brief golden age of Israel. The Queen of Sheba comes down seeking the wisdom of Solomon. People are looking to Israel to be a light. And that's a very good thing. Solomon will also have the great job and the, do the great act of building the temple. So he will bring God in from the wilderness, from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And he will build a, a once-for-all house for him. Um, at least during the time of the Old Testament, he'll build the temple. And the story of the building of the temple is in, in verse six, uh, chapter 6, rather. And it's really interesting the way it's described. It gives, you know, a lot of the measurements and kind of the nitty-gritty, the details of what this place looked like. But at the very end of chapter 6, it says, this is chapter 6, verse 38, In the 11th year, in the month of Bul, in the eighth month, the temple was finished, finished to all its, in all its details according to, the specif- to its specifications. He had spent, that's Solomon, he had spent seven years building it. And right butted up against that last verse that says he spent seven years building the temple, of course, the covenant number, um, you know, the, the idea of completion, perfection. The very next verse, it says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his own palace. It's really subtle. doesn't give you too much commentary on that. But there's this little, again, warning flag. Oh, it took him seven years to build the temple. That's really great, this covenant number. Oh, by the way, he spent twice as long building his own house out of the finest cedars of Lebanon and everything else. And it describes his house. It tells you a lot about what Solomon is becoming. God gives him the gift of wisdom. He says, alongside it, I'm also going to give you the the, uh, gift of riches and power. And God sort of gives the implication that it's up to you and your wisdom to decide how those will be best used. Will you use the power and the riches that I give you wisely or will you use it unwisely? And Solomon will descend into pretty dark evil by the end of his story. This is sort of little pieces building it up. Eventually, he'll acquire 600 wives, which is probably why he needs such a big house that spends 13 years building to house all these wives he has. He's going to offer all these sacrifices to different gods. He'll have way too much money. He's going to build up uh, an offensive military in Israel, something that God said specifically not to do. You know, back in Deuteronomy, God gives specific warnings to Israel about the time when they will eventually have kings. And he says the three things that kings should never do in Israel is acquire the three W's, right? Never acquire too many wives, too much weaponry, and too much wealth, because those three things are going to get you. Solomon does all three, and it leads to the downfall of the kingdom. So here's a man who is really, in a certain sense, seeking God's will, But he doesn't entirely understand. There's a lot of weeds in his life. There's a lot of evil that he actually does. That leads us into Psalm 119. And Psalm seven, uh, Psalm one nineteen is it, it's it's kind of like a devotional on the Word of God, on God's Scripture. It says, "Lord, I love your commands." Uh, it goes on and says, I have said, O Lord, that my part is to keep your words. The law of your mouth is to me more precious than a thousands of gold and silver pieces. All of those things in context should actually remind us of Solomon. Solomon had the wisdom and he had the capacity. He had the gifts by God to understand the commands, to love them, to keep his words. 
It's precisely what he did not do. They're more precious than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Solomon decided the opposite. I mean, this is so evocative if you know the story that Solomon turned his back on the commands and the words of the Lord in exchange for thousands of silver and gold pieces. Um, It says, let your kindness comfort me according to the promise of your servants. Let your compassion me come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Solomon's delight became other things. He is blessed to understand the ways of God and he turns his back on it. He was on the inside in a certain sense. God revealed things to Solomon. He let him in in a certain sense in a way that he didn't let anybody else in. Now hang on to that because I think that is going to be kind of the crux for our gospel reading for today. So that being said, we jump to, to the second reading, uh, uh, second reading, which is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It says, Brothers and sisters, we know that all things work for the good for those who love God, who are called to the, according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. It begins by saying, we know that all things work for good for those who love God. You might read something like the story of Solomon in the Old Testament and think, well, what good can possibly come out of that? Here's, you know, this important figure in Israel's history. What's the good of reading that? Well, you know, part of the purpose of the sacred scriptures, part of the purpose of God's word to us is oftentimes to teach us what not to do. That's why the story of Solomon is in here. It's interesting. If you read the stories of the kings in the Old Testament, they are completely um, disproportionate. The bad things they do are completely disproportionate to the good things they do. There's so much more written about their evil and their sin and their downfalls than there is their good, which is totally unique in the entirety of ancient writings. Um, you know, in the the writings of of the annals of of history of these ancient nations. So the people surrounding Israel, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all these people, when they wrote histories of their people and their kings, their kings were basically demigods. They did no wrong. Every choice they made was right. Every war they fought was won. Everything they did was perfect. That's the way that histories were written, except in the case of the Israelites. And I think the reason that was done was because the glory was meant to go to God, not to the kings. And so God works through all things for the good of those who love him. If we love him and if we have the eyes to do what the psalm asks us to do, which is to keep his commands and to understand his words, then we're going to understand even the evils that are done in the Old Testament. We're going to understand how important it is that we know why Solomon fell and that he fell and that he was given a great gift that he rejected and what that actually means to our lives. God works through the good for the good through all those things for those who love him. He says for those who he knew foreknew he also predestined. You know, Catholics do believe in predestination. We don't, uh, it's one of the, if you're familiar with Protestant debates and things like this, you know, our, some of our Protestant friends talk a lot about predestination. Um, Catholics don't have a reputation for believing in it, but we do because Paul is very clear that God predestines people. What we don't believe in is what's called double predestination. So God has his will. God's going to do what he's going to do. If he wants somebody to be with him, he can predestine that person to be with him for all of eternity. What we do not believe in as Catholics is what's called double predestination, which means that we don't believe that God will ever condemn anyone to hell. No one, I'm sorry, let me, people do go to hell. I, I believe that. We don't know for sure of anyone in hell. We don't know their names, but I do believe there's a hell. 
What we don't believe is that anyone is predestined to go to hell. No one is set up by God to lose their salvation. It can't happen. God doesn't do that. Um, there's a, a line in the catechism. Oh, I don't know what it is. But the catechism talks about that, how we don't believe in double predestination. Um, oh, it's right in front of me. It's, it's uh, paragraph 1037 in the catechism, which means that no one is predestined by God for damnation. That's just not the way it works. God intends us to always be with him. He intended, I fully believe, for Solomon to make the right decision. He predestined him to do the right things. And Solomon chose freely to reject that. Now, God always knows the choices we're going to make, but we get the freedom to make them regardless. But again, God is going to work through all of those good things for the good of those who love him. That, I think, leads us into the gospel. The gospel, again, we're in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and we're continuing on really exactly where we left off last week. So Matthew, uh, Jesus, through all of Matthew 13, has been talking about these parables. He's been giving a number of parables. Uh, there was sort of a, a turning point moment where the Pharisees and the scribes and these naysayers said that Jesus only has the power to cast out demons because he's working for and with the prince of demons. And it's only through the power of Satan that Jesus can do these things. It's at that moment when people say that Jesus is working for Satan that he begins to speak in parables. And he does that because he realizes these people aren't ready to hear what I have to say. They cannot be on the inside of this right now because if they do... It's going to lead me to my death prematurely. He's not ready to go to the cross quite yet. He has things that he still has to do. So he begins to speak in parables because he needs to veil some of the things that he's saying. And so we continue in these, uh, these parables in verse 44 with this. Here's what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and he hides again, and, goes, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The idea of, uh, of a hidden treasure, the idea that the kingdom cannot be seen by everyone is really important for the, the themes of this chapter. How this whole thing began is that people could not see the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. He's been proclaiming the kingdom. He's been talking about its coming. He's been saying, repent for it's near, it's at hand. And people have rejected that and compared him and put him over in Satan's camp. He's saying a lot of people aren't going to see this. It's like a hidden treasure. But if you see it, if you have the eyes to recognize it, you're going to want to give up everything for this. There's also a sense of urgency. If you realize what the kingdom is, you need to go out right away and sell everything you have if, if that's what it takes to get in this kingdom. At this point in the story, Jesus is about to be headed toward Calvary pretty soon. There will be those who hear his message and those who reject it. He is like a master coming home. Will the servants be ready? His homecoming isn't going to look like what anyone expected it to look like. It's going to start like they expected it to. So he will, we mentioned the story of Solomon just in the first reading, he will march into Jerusalem like a king. He's going to go in on a donkey. He's going to look like good King Solomon in all of his wisdom, being shown the might of his throne, that he is the true son of David. Jesus will do that. And then everything's going to change. The wisdom that Jesus is going to present, the wisdom of going to the cross, as St. Paul says in Romans, is like foolishness to this world. Or That's Corinthians. But it's like foolishness. Are people going to be ready? Are you going to see it? If you do, hurry up. Take note of it. This is a big deal. It's going to be hidden to most. So take care that you don't miss it. Then he goes on. He gives another parable about a pearl of great price. He says, uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. 
When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys it. So again, this idea that if you discover the kingdom, if you recognize it, there is an urgency that, that we have to prioritize the kingdom and its recognition above everything else. Put everything else behind you. Again, this is what Solomon could not do. He supposedly had the wisdom of God to see this, but he put everything else first. He sold, in a certain sense, the kingdom of God to buy other things. He sold the pearl to buy the things that he thought looked more attractive. He gives another parable. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea. In the Greek, it literally, what it says is it's like a dragnet. So if you imagine what's going on behind him, he's speaking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and and the setting would have provided a perfect backdrop for these parables, because right behind the apostles and right behind all the people listening to him, probably Jesus, there would have probably been big boats who had big nets. So one of the things they did in the ancient world, there would often be two boats kind of next to each other. They would drop a giant dragnet in between the two boats with weights on the bottom, and they would sail the boats forward and literally indiscriminately just drag up and scoop up everything they could. And you'd catch a lot of good fish that way, but you'd also catch a lot of bad fish and boots and tires and everything else that you don't really want. And it says, he says this, this net, which is what the kingdom of heaven is like, it, connects fish of every, it collects fish of every kind, and when it is full, they haul it ashore, and they sit down to put what is good into buckets, what's bad they throw away. Thus it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. This is really similar, I think, to, I think it was last week, we got the parable of the wheat and the chaff, right? The wheat and the weeds. And there's a, you know this, this person growing a field and someone comes in and sows poisonous weeds into the field along with everything. And the, the stewards say, well, what do we do? Do we take out the weeds? And he says, well, no, you can't take out the weeds because you might kill the wheat along with it. So we're going to wait until the very end and then we'll separate the two. They're going to grow up together. This is very similar. This net is going to catch the good fish and the bad fish, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And it's going to have to be there together until the end, until it's taken out and then it can be sorted through. Um, you know, we talked about this last week, how there is wheat and there are weeds in the church. There are good fish and there's a lot of trash going on in the church. Sometimes it's sitting next to us in the pew. It's hard to tell which one is which. And what's even deeper than that is that this wheat and weeds or these fish and this garbage, it also is all present at all times inside of us. We have the good stuff and the bad stuff in us simultaneously. And that, I think, is what brings us all the way back to Solomon. He made a lot of right decisions. He made some wise choices. He asked God for all the right things. But there was corruption in his heart. There were other things that he put before God. There were these high altars. There was this pagan sacrifice. There was the hot daughter of Pharaoh that he insisted on marrying. There was the political alliance with Egypt that he wanted over and above the things that he was supposed to do in faithfulness to God's kingdom. There's wheat and there's weeds. There's fish and there's junk inside of all of us. The question about that wheat and weeds or that junk and fish inside of all of us that's constantly fighting with each other is which one is going to win? Which one is going to be victorious? You know, we've said it before. I think it's a quote from my friend, Father John Riley. He says, a saint is just a sinner who never stopped trying. A saint is merely a sinner who never stopped trying. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be this battle in us until the very end. And God says the angels will go out and separate the two from the other. And hopefully, I believe that's what purgatory actually is, where it will be separated inside of us. Even in our very souls and our very minds and our hearts, the bad is going to be separated out and thrown into the furnace and burned up 
so that I can actually be holy, so that I can eventually enter into the throne room of God. The question as we go through life is which one of those is going to win. We see in the story of King Solomon, they were both present. There's the good and the bad. There's the holy desires, and then there's the earthly desires. Which one's going to win? For Solomon, the one that won was the earthly desires, and it led to a lot of people's destruction. It led to the breakdown of an entire kingdom. Other people are actually riding on our decision. It matters what we choose. The way that this passage ends in Matthew, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, do you understand all of these things? And they answered, yep. <laughs> they answered, yes. I don't, you know, you get the impression in the gospels that the disciples don't understand anything, but they say, yes. They say, yeah, yeah, we get it. Um, they probably don't understand all of it, but they're getting it. I, I believe that. I don't think that's tongue-in-cheek for Matthew. I think they do get it. And it says, he replied, Then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household for who, who brings his storeroom, both the old, both the new and the old. It's really important that Jesus says this. Do you understand all these things? And they say yes. The, uh, the, their response in the positive is, is important because understanding the parables is precisely what Jesus said the crowds were going to lack. As he began all these parables, he said that the crowds and these people and these naysayers were going to be deaf and blind and not understand. The lack of understanding is what differentiates those who are inside from those who are outside. And here's the crux of everything. The disciples say they understand. They're on the inside. Jesus has not only asked them if they understand, but he's actually been interpreting the parables to them. He's been sitting them down saying, do you understand what this parable meant? Do you understand what that parable meant? Here, let's walk through them. They're on the inside. Yet, even the ones who are on the inside, who have all the right things, who have been given these gifts, at the very end, almost all of them are going to reject Jesus. Peter will actually sell him out, flat out. Judas is going to sell him for money. All the rest of the apostles will abandon him except John. Their understanding, which I think is legitimate at this time, is going to be a constant battle. For a while, it's going to appear as though the weeds won in the lives of the, of the disciples, especially Peter, the chief of the disciples, who is flat out going to reject Jesus explicitly. There's a constant battle. But here's the thing. Once Peter, and I imagine the rest of the disciples, once they realize what they have done, once they realize that the weeds were starting to take over, they turn to Jesus. When Jesus appears after his resurrection, the first thing that Peter does when he sees him is run to him. He jumps in the lake. He swims as fast as he can because I imagine that Peter understood that the weeds are taking me over. Heal me, Jesus. Fix me. There's that moment in all of our lives when we realize, wow, I am not headed down the road I need to be headed down. Things are not going where I wanted them to go. Things are pretty ugly. It might feel good. There might be all of these things that are working in my life. Maybe there's money, maybe there's career, whatever it is. But I think we all have that moment where we realize I'm not headed down the route that I'm supposed to be headed down. Am I prepared to give up that road and all the things that it contains within it and turn to Jesus and ask for healing? Or have the weeds gotten too strong? Am I not able to break out of those weeds or at least reach out to Jesus and ask that he break through those weeds? Because that's the crux of the matter. Peter and the disciples were able to do that. They were able to pull their hands out and reach toward Jesus who they knew would heal them. Solomon was not. He realized that the weeds had won. I don't know if you realize it or not, but he gave in to the weeds. 
he embraced the weeds and it led to the downfall of a kingdom. I like to hope that at some point in Solomon's life, he realized what he had done and he asked for God's forgiveness. God will always grant his forgiveness. He works the good for all, uh, through all things for those who love him, like the second reading said. But that's the question. Are the weeds going to win or is the wheat going to win? And if it seems like the weeds are winning, what do we need to do about that? Peter got it. The disciples got it. Solomon doesn't appear to have gotten it. What do we do? Are we going to get it? Are we going to realize what we need to do? Are we going to see the weeds in our life and beg God to remove them? Because we've all got them. We've all got the fish and we've all got the junk. What we need to do is ask God to send those angels to take the junk out of our lives and to throw it into the fiery furnace so that only the wheat and only the fish will thrive. And then God will have worked through all those things in our life for the good of those who love him, which is what the second reading asks us to do. Well, everybody, uh, I appreciate your being with me. I appreciate your sitting through just me this week. Um, none of the fun, witty banter. Uh, but I hope you got something out of this. I hope you uh, have a wonderful Mass and that the readings come alive for you. Um, we will be back next week. Father will be back. Father Peter will be back in the country. We will be back together, sitting side by side in our cozy little chairs as we record next week's podcast. Uh, have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful Mass. Pray for us. Pray for Father Peter's safe return to the U.S. Um, send us an email. Lanky guys at thomascenter.org. Find us on Facebook. Um, find us any other way you want to find us. Tweet about us. Put us on your Pinterest, Pinterest page. And tell your friends about us. We will be back next week. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.